Dad Bod History. Welcome to this episode of Dad Bod History. I'm Jake. Got Eric here. No Jeff, no Cameron, and that's fine. We don't need them. We can do this on our own. Um, so, welcome to this episode of Dad Bod History. And I, I want to talk about revolutions. Yeah. And uh, yeah, fight the yeah, power. Fight the man. Down with the bourgeoisie. Uh, I want to talk about revolutions tonight. And uh, kind of get into specifically the communist revolution will kind of be the starting point for, for what I want to talk about. Um, but before we do that, let's just spend a couple minutes real quick. Eric, how you doing? Fantastic. Totten Bako. It is hot. Totten Bakersfield. Like 108 degrees yeah. today. Jeez. And I know people, we had students who were in Houston this past week. It was like 95 with 85% humidity or something. So I guess that was brutal, but whatever. Yeah, it's hot. It's just hot. It's just hot. Yeah. No, I get that. We took uh, the kids down to the park with our neighbors and played for a couple hours at the park. And it was awesome. But like, so they had like, it was at a school. And so they had one playground area, which is like, you know, normal. It's got slides and all that stuff. And then they had this other one. It's got like these ropes of like kind of webbing, so we call them spider webs. But like the rest of the 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 play equipment was all like stainless steel, like it was this postmodern industrial stainless steel brutalism. playground. Yeah, well, <laughs> brutal indeed because it was really hot and like lots of hard edges. Like 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 they took all the advancements of safety and said, you know what. We're not going to do that today. You know, uh, Ray has got a bunch of scrap metal that he can weld together and, and make a playground with. on a budget. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's like, I didn't, I mean, it's like a new school. Like, they had the budget to, to make everything. And, like, it would have been one thing if, if they had it and they at least put a shade over it to block some of the sun. But it was just hot. Anyway, so that was my, my day today. But nice. without further ado, you say you want a revolution, but sometimes you, you, what is it? You regret what you get or, you know, get more than you bargained for, get more than you bargained for with a revolution. Because if you, uh, and the reason I bring this up is because uh, July 17th. So today, 1918, Tsar um, Nicholas was Killed um, after he had abdicated the throne. Uh, uh, the he, was, he was straight up murdered. Well, I have just like, I'm setting the scene. Just, yeah, they were yeah. murdered. But oh yeah, so he had abdicated the throne in 1917, um, and uh, the Bolsheviks basically kept him away in Katerine. Ekaterinburg, I believe. Out to the east yeah, near in, the Ural Mountains. Yeah, like in, yeah. And so kept them basically as hostages throughout the duration of World War I. Um, and during the Communist Revolution, the Bolsheviks just kept him, his wife, and his family there. And then on this day, July 17, 1918, he and his wife and kids were murdered, I think, either outside or like in the basement of yeah. this house that they've been held uh, hostage Along with... Um, like part of their retinue, 
right? There was people like the chef, one of their housekeepers that were also killed alongside them. I, I do have one thing to add yeah. here, though. It's kind of funny. When Tsar Nicholas abdicated the throne, he abdicated and it went to his brother, Michael. And Michael was like, yeah, no thanks. And just passed like hard pass because mm-hmm. he had no interest in dying. Well, and that's well. the thing is, is that in 1918, the, the, the civil war between the Bolsheviks and I guess the Royalists and the white Russians and the mm-hmm. reds, right? Yeah. Was still raging on. And I think it would continue for another until 1921. Yeah. It lasted the, a while. The war was finally settled. And so at 1918, that's why the Bolsheviks had kept him hostage as, as a bargaining chip. And then they said, well, I guess we don't need that bargaining chip anymore. And, and then they killed him because they didn't want him to still be alive and have people use him as a rally point or as, to be able to make a claim for the throne again. So anyway, they murdered him. In you know, in comes Lenin and, and Trotsky and, and then a young Joseph Stalin to, uh, you know, sweep in the communist revolution. And the point being is under the czar, especially under Nicholas, things weren't good for the average Russian citizen. Uh, in 1905, there was a revolution in part because of the failure in the Russo-Japanese war. Uh, the Russian peasantry was never fully industrialized. The serfdom was still basically around in 1917 where most European powers, heck, even most non-European powers had abolished serfdom uh, by this point. And so life for the average Russian was not great. And so that's a big part of why communism took hold there is because this idea of a classless state where you didn't have a uh, an upper crust and a bourgeoisie keeping the peasant down. That's why it took hold there. But what it brought in definitely over the next 40 to 50 years was far worse than the previous 40 to 50 years. One can make an argument uh, for the average Russian. So the revolution that they brought in that was supposed to you know, lead to this better society led to a, a horribly repressed society. And that's just kind of, you know, because I, I think in America, especially because we had the American Revolution, well, we think, well, revolutions are good and they're getting rid of this bad thing and bringing in this better thing. But far more often than not, revolutions do not lead to a better society, at least in the short terms. You know, uh, we talked about France last week and, and they had revolutions going throughout the 1850s. Um and now you could say, well, France today is far better than France of 1789, but it took a long time to get there. And that's France, which was an established nation state for hundreds of years prior to the revolution. Oh, and that might be why thoughts, their, Eric? their revolution took so long is because they had something that was a bit more established. Um, <clears throat> mm-hmm. But also... You know, the Russian Revolution was occurring in a country that was like primarily agrarian. And in France, Mm -hmm. there was something more of an urban. There was more urban centers. Maybe that had something to do with it as well. Um, Sure. You know, I was was looking through poking around again because I remember looking into the the execution of the Romanovs a bit. 
And the assassins, the, the people who actually executed the family, some of these guys lived into the 1960s or 70s. Like they died as old men, these executioners. Wow. Um, but I do know that um, shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s, uh, they actually went about like f- completing the investigation of the execution. And um, mm-hmm. they had the report from one of the executioners that was published and they had all this information that came out. They were able to go find the bodies. I think it was in July, 1991. They, they found the bodies. Um, they exhumed them. Mm-hmm. They verified via DNA that they were in fact the Romanovs. And then they took them to um, St. Petersburg to be laid to rest in the Peter and Paul Cathedral, including uh, Peter the Great resides there. So, um, yeah. But of course, you know, that's that's the new Russian Republic or the new, new Russian Federation carrying out that investigation and stuff. It's not the communist state. Mm-hmm. So they're looking back on it as this dark mark in their history when, you know, the communists would have said that was that was the goal. You have to overthrow these people in power, these these monarchs, you have to overthrow them violently, as Karl Marx would have said. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting with that, like you said, and and with Russia's history, and again, it's a very ancient people. Um, but the Romanovs, although Russia never was able to catch up to Europe as far as industrialization and, and enlightenment and modernization, the Romanovs did expand the territories of the Russians and brought them the prestige that they had lacked, especially under Catherine the Great and Peter the Great. And uh, Tsar Nicholas's father was it mm-hmm. Alexander. Um, you know, they had had these prestige nation-state successes. And after communism fell, like, well, the thing that we'd been kind of pinning our reputation on the past 70 years has fallen apart. So let's let's go back to the to the Romanovs and kind of tie back into that history. And, and, you know, then they changed Stalingrad and like they re- they renamed the cities back to what they yeah. originally were prior to the communist revolution to kind of say, well, let's get back to this Russian history. Uh, so it was a very interesting interlude between the Romanovs and the Russian Federation. And part of Vladimir Putin um, and his geopolitical goals is to restore Russia back to their 1917 borders before, um, before the communist revolution. So he's trying to still tie into that older history, even though he was a very active yeah. member of the KGB. Let's not forget um, that. <laughs> during the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> even though he's so, but he's even he is like trying to restore. He's trying to tie back to what he would probably call their glory, their Russian glory. Um, so it's very interesting. Um, but it, all that to say, you know, these revolutions that happen, you know, 
we, we like to be optimistic about revolutions because they're an opportunity to progress a people or a nation state to something yeah, better. It's an opportunity to but remove, it doesn't remove always obstacles happen. towards progress because we'd say that if, if in fact, uh, you know, I'm revolting against a system that's, that's, you know, harming human rights or whatever, you know, say it's a French revolution, we're removing the monarchy that's, that they literally had reg a regressive tax system. The more you made, the less you paid. And, you know, that's a system that if you're at the bottom and most French people were, you'd say, this makes no sense. And we're starving and we have problems and mm. you're not fixing them and you're the ruling class. Um, yeah, we're going to we're going to remove you from the situation. If you're the Americans, you're saying we we aren't represented we're the colonists. We're not represented. So we you're you're removing our participation from the system that you've designed, even if it has a semblance of democracy to it. We're going to change it up so that we can be fully represented and exactly make a new system. If you're the Russians, we're saying um, the, the czars have ruled for many years. Tsar Nicholas, you've done a terrible job over the past 20 years. Um, we've seen disaster after disaster mm -hmm. after you know, famine and it's, it's just not working out. You're not good at this. We're going to put a new system in place. And in each of these cases, except for the American revolution, in each of these cases, you have people end up jockeying for power in the power vacuum. And you end up in effectively a civil war in all, in, in both cases, right? The Russians have a civil war between the Reds, which is not just the Bolsheviks, but their their allied partners, and the Whites, which is everyone mm -hmm. else. And in the the French Revolution, you keep having these power vacuums that occur over and over and over, resulting in twenty years later a dictatorship. The American Revolution, yeah. the power vacuum happens within the framework of of you know, the, the, the you know, articles of confederation early on, and then also the constitution, all those, those battles happen within that framework. You know, when you have battles between, uh, you know, the federalists and, uh, the anti-federalists, they're, they're trying to fill a place within the American Republic that, yeah. that hasn't been established yet in terms of how are we going to carry out this democracy in this republic. So it's that's a less violent one. Well, and, and what they were doing was not starting wholesale with a new system mm -hmm. like the French or the Russian revolutions were. They were taking the British parliamentarian system and changing it to suit their own ends. And in fact, they weren't all that against a king. They just didn't yeah. want an English king because they remember they, they tried to give yeah. George Washington the monarchy of America and he didn't want it. And so, so what America did, although it was a revolution and there were some very radical and progressive ideas, especially in the Declaration of Independence, they weren't starting with a whole new system. They were taking a system that largely worked with the British Parliament, and they made it American, and they suited it for the American colonies. Um, 
it kind of reminds me of Matthew, the book of Matthew from the Bible, when it says, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through um, seeking a place to rest. And then it says, well, I returned to the house from which I came and it finds the house empty. And then it comes and brings more evil spirits. And so like, that's what the, the, these happen in these Russian and the French revolutions. Like they threw out the monarchy, which was bad, but they weren't able to fill it with a framework that was good, you know? And so something worse, arguably, at least in the short term came in and filled, you know, the same thing void. And a lot of these yeah, the same thing is going to happen following World War One in both Italy and Germany. Italy, which has a which has a monarch, exactly. The monarch is is slowly just going to kind of abdicate his power over time to Mussolini. And in Germany, they get rid of their monarch. The monarch abdicates. Kaiser Wilhelm abdicates. Mm-hmm. The Weimar Republic is established, but it is so weak in its ability to manage the economics coming out of World War One that the German people are mm-hmm. are like begging for somebody to take control and fix things. And that's where the the Nazis mm-hmm. are able to get into and and win certain states within Germany. I think Bavaria was one of the states that they they just happened to dominate, and that was enough to get all the dominoes to fall for them because they were able to dominate that state and then dominate the press in that state. And then, again, the Weimar mm-hmm. Republic was powerless to really step in and do anything, and so the Nazis just yeah. used that that vacuum to take control. Um, you know, and so that's an argument to have – that's an argument for having a strong state power to prevent usurpers. Right. And, and people might hate that fact, yeah. like, well, you know, power should be with all the states. Let's, let's go to the United States for a second. Power should be with all the states. And I, and I do think there's an enumeration of powers to the states, but you need a strong federal government. Sure. Otherwise they won't stay together. Which is why the Articles of Confederation yeah. was a failure, is because the states were like, "Well, I'm not going to play I'll nice make my with own money. My I'll make my own trade rules." And there was <clears throat> exactly so. And it's interesting because, you know, it, going back to England, uh, by the time of the Glorious Revolution in 1688, where William and Mary come over, the Hanovers come over from Germany to England and they throw out the last of the Stuarts and they're like, all right, well, it's a glorious revolution. It's like, yeah, but like at this point, the, the power of the King or queen of England was greatly reduced and really most power had reside has, was held within parliament at this point. So like this, this use, this, um, lessening of power from the monarch and this gaining of power in the parliament have been happening over centuries. I mean, you could say the Magna Carta 1215 is when it started. Um, but any, from then it had been a slow decline where they went from this absolute monarch to now where we have this figurehead in Queen Elizabeth II and parliament. And so like it had happened over centuries. And so in America, when, when they broke off, they just said, well, we'll just keep doing what you're doing 
and we'll just cut out the, the middleman. We'll just cut out the king part because we don't need that. Because you guys really don't need that. I mean, I know George is issuing proclamation, but it was it was Parliament that was passing these acts that you know instigated the the revolution. So it's just kind of interesting how that happened. And another test case of when revolutions go bad was Cuba. And it, you know you have obviously the communist revolution in 1959 when they threw out Batista, but. Batista himself had been part of a revolution in 1933 where they threw out the the ruler of Cuba like it was just it was it was just like an, a never ending cycle in Cuba. I mean even the Spanish American War was a result of a Cuban revolution um mm-hmm. trying to throw out the Spanish and then American interests got involved from 1898 to 1950, you know, 53-59 and it, it was just a series of revolutions over and over again within Cuba and you know, you can make an argument that Batista was bad. I mean, he was not a good leader for Cuba, but I would make a strong case that Castro didn't do any better. Although his initial goals were admirable trying to help the Cuban people, uh, the communism, definitely the style of communism that he brought in was absolutely devastating to the Cuban people. And they're still suffering from it to this day. And this isn't an argument for free market capitalism. It's just an argument for where revolutions go awry. they usually do. I mean, Uh, there's always going to be people who suffer at the end of revolution. And and most revolutions have this phase. And sometimes it's it's the entire thing is that phase. Um, You know, another similar revolution would be like the Spanish Civil War, you know, in which you have Mm – and it's a very complicated thing, and I've still tried to wrap my head around it, where the Spanish monarchy tries to give itself over to this republic, and Spain tries to become this republic in the 1930s. And you have the Republicans, not to be confused with American Republicans, since these Republicans are more yeah. far, far more leftist. <laughs> and then you have... Yeah. The other side, which become, and I'm trying to, man, I, I wish I had spent a little time, like, thinking about this ahead of time. The nationalists, that's who it is. Um, the nationalists, which are, mm-hmm. you know, supported by Francisco Franco, and the Republicans have support from the Soviet Union. The nationalists have support from Italy, Germany, and Portugal. And then you also have all these foreign people helping during the Spanish Civil War. And again, this is like that that pregame. Well, Hemingway, right? Hemingway fought. Hemingway in observed it. He wrote about it, or he was there. I don't know that he fought. Um, he had fought in yeah. World War One as an ambulance driver. Okay. Um, but it was like this testing ground for World War Two tactics. When. The Spanish Civil War ends. The nationalists are in control, and Francisco Franco is basically the dictator. And Adolf Hitler and Mussolini had hoped when World War II started that Franco and Spain would assist the Axis. They did not. Franco lives until like 1973. And this is where things get um, kind of like tricky. Francisco Franco remains dictator of Spain until 1975. When he dies, 
he hands, I, I believe he handed everything over to his, his brother. And, and then Spain basically transitions to a democracy, like a peaceful transition. And yeah, they restore their but monarchy. But they also restore the king. <laughs> and there, so <laughs> yeah. um, Juan Carlos I becomes king again um, because he was born yeah. shortly after the Civil War or right towards the end of the Civil War. He's, you know, goes to the throne. Well, if I remember correctly, he was he was instrumental in the transition to a democracy. Like he was a, although he yeah, didn't he's have a lot like, of power, I, he was like, um, yeah, this rallying point for I'm his glad Spanish I'm king, identity. But we're going to transition this to a democracy, and his his son is Felipe sure. the sixth, and he is the current king of Spain, and he took over in 2014, and and again, he's he's kind of presiding over a democracy. Sure. And, I, you know. Which a lot yeah. of these European nations are. I mean, obviously England, Spain, uh, but Norway, Sweden are all constitutional yeah. monarchies with very robust democracies. Um, it's very interesting how they, they keep the monarchy. But, you know, the actual effect of government is when I get into these conversations democracy. with my students about the monarchies that still exist in Europe, especially. I'll start poking around on, on Wikipedia and start looking for information on the monarchs. And I'll pull up, like, the number of people that are, like, their children. Children. Like, the same age as my students, who are next in line for the throne of so-and-so, right? And uh, mm -hmm. it's it's just kind of, it's wild to think about, Right. But there's some kid like poking around on Roblox who's the next king of the Netherlands. It's going to lead them to a glorious era of Roblox yeah. and Minecraft dominance. Um, it's interesting because, you know, in the 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, there was this, obviously, you have the Cold War, but you also have this these nations trying to become more free and democratic. And one mm -hmm. of those was Iran in 19, was it 51? They elected the prime minister, um, Mossadegh in 1951, the prime minister of Iran. Uh, but the Shah of Iran at the time didn't like that and, uh, lobbied the United States, the CIA basically to, oust Mossadegh. And part of that was because, and the United States was okay with it. Well, one, they said, because the Soviets were going to take over. That was the the press release, so to speak, um, with Mossadegh in power. But another art problem is, is that BP was in Iran and Mossadegh nationalized <laughs> the oil in Iran. And so that BP lost their money, basically. And so they used um, the United States and the CIA to um, stage a coup and oust Mossadegh so that the Shah could remain in power. Um, and so, you know, when it's just funny when you mention in the Spanish Civil War, 
you had all these outside interests vying for influence in the outcome of that war. They weren't participating directly, but they were definitely involved. Um, I believe the Germans sent yeah. like Luftwaffe planes to Spain um, for their use and um, to see how they would do in combat. And it's very, you know, like they had all these outside influences. Well, the same thing in Iran and in a bunch of other countries in the 40s, 50s, and 60s where the United States and Russia primarily were exerting influence, if not outright military action. They were exerting influence in all these other nations around the world to kind of in this big global chess match with each other. Um, and you can kind of see the same thing playing out right now in Iran mm -hmm. or not Iran, uh, Ukraine where the Western nations aren't fighting this war against Russia, but they're, they've certainly placed their bets and are trying yeah. to influence the outcome. So it's just another, you know, and, and I would say a big part of this war in Ukraine is absolutely as a result of a Ukrainian revolution against Russian influence. Uh, the election in 2014 that started this whole thing was because they threw out the pro-Russian president, Poroshenko, I believe. I hope I'm getting that right. And um, elected a more Western president. And that's what prompted Russia to annex Crimea and start moving into the Donbass. And, you you know, so the revolution, the revolution in Ukraine started relatively peacefully, um, and, but has now escalated into this full scale war. You know, it's interesting that, that kind of circles very back to the Russian Revolution, because during the Russian Revolution mm -hmm. um, in 1918, the Germans and the Russians the Russians sued the Germans for peace. And they said, hey, uh, we've got a civil war going on. We're not interested in fighting this war anymore. And the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, mm -hmm. which ended the war between Germany and Russia, gave Germany this massive chunk of yeah. Russia, including nearly all of what is now Ukraine. I think it was 25% of Russia's European it, it, territory. Like it was, like but if it you was think massive about that, and it was incredibly why valuable. Why would the Russians cede that particular territory? Like, because they gave up like what is now Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, parts of Belarus, and then all of Ukraine. Because why would you give up Ukraine unless, unless you don't care about the people there? Unless you don't consider them Russian, right? Mm -hmm. So, there's this, and again, the motivation, I haven't gone and read it a great deal about it, but they basically gave Ukraine over to Germany. And, and now, yeah, this idea of, of Ukraine being originally Russian is being used as the justification for invading it. Yeah, and, and Putin, what did Putin say? When Bush, George Bush was still president, I think he said to Bush, he goes, well, they aren't their own people. They don't, mm -hmm. they're not, they are just Russian. Like they aren't their own, this idea that Ukraine exists separate and, and, from Russia is fantasy. You no, know, I mean, it's accurate and, to a point. It's not accurate. The Russians but, are derived from the Kievan Rus. I mean, it was founded in Kiev, not Moscow. Yeah. Right. The power emanated from the South. 
Yeah. So if anything, you're just all Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Kiev in the Principality of Kiev, I believe, uh, existed until those Mongols came in and destroyed everything, and then they became part of the the Khan. Um, yeah, the Khan. Uh, Khanate. Yeah, I was just reading about uh, Khanate. That yeah, again. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah, it's, it's just it's fascinating, and we're kind of getting out of the weeds or into the weeds here, but it, it does kind of circle back because. You have this, what started as a relatively peaceful revolution in Ukraine against foreign influence, and specifically Russian foreign influence. And that prompted a Russian military reaction in Ukraine. And then that prompted a very Western, not military, but definitely a Western reaction. Yeah, and, and it's, it's just fascinating. And a lot of these, no, none of these revolutions exist in a vacuum. Um, and that's something to be cognizant of. Like we, we say, oh, well, the American Revolution existed. No, it didn't. France was yeah. absolutely a major player in the American And not Revolution. because they loved the idea um, of democracy. They just loved so the idea the of the British losing. No, <laughs> They're just like sticking it to the Brits, yeah, and the and the Germans. Yeah. I mean, the Hessian mercenaries were a huge part of the war, um, and, and the French Revolution was not solely a French revolution. I mean, the English were involved, the Americans uh, were involved, and kind of left the French high and dry um, since we were supposed to support them. But anyway, um, you know, you have all these other players that, although not directly involved absolutely influence the outcome of these revolutions. Um, so yeah, revolution, that's it. You know, sometimes when you get a revolution, you get more than you bargained for. I I said it before. That's all, you know, the reason the French stormed the Bastille was because their leaders were, their rulers were self-serving, incompetent, jack wagons and tool bags. And uh, our rulers, exactly. Even when they call themselves elected, not much has changed. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, uh, thanks for joining us uh, on this little dad bod snack. um, Talking about revolutions. Thank you guys for joining us. Make sure you like, subscribe, follow, and we'll see y'all next time. Viva la revolution! It was fun.